Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1208. Recorded Saturday, October 3rd, 2015. Hey, 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 it's Carl and Richard. How you doing, buddy? Good, good. You know, piles of research, the usual for a geek out. I am seriously excited about this. Um, my wife and I saw The Martian last night in 3D in the theater, and you saw it last night, too. I did, yeah. So we, we both saw it more or less at the same time. More or less. And I guess we'll, I guess we should do the usual intros, and then we'll get to the whole, this is going to be a spoiler. Yes, that's right. This is going to be a spoiler. So if you haven't seen the movie or read the book and don't want to know how it works out, go no further. You've been warned. We, this is not a normal geek out. No. But first, it's better no framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Halloween is next week as uh, this show publishes. And as for Halloween, you know, I always look for Halloween-y things. And I found something that crosses over for sci-fi fans at Halloween. The best Star Wars Wampa costume ever. <laughs> Tinyurl.com slash Wampa costume. W-A-M-P-A. Wampa. This guy made a seven and a half foot tall abominable snowman looking thing from the empire strikes back and uh it's amazing and he documents the whole thing wow. and he's a military guy so he starts with a frame a pvc frame that's huge right the guy's only like five four but it's a seven and a half foot thing he's <laughs> he's on stilts uh you know it's great it's all furry and fuzzy and it looks like, you know, he just ate a llama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so cool. I love how he used PVC. Yeah. To give the thing some shape and, and, and structure without actually, you know, being terribly expensive. PVC is cheap stuff, really. Very cool. So, you know, you got a week to make it. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Get to work. Get to work. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i got man what do you what do you got who's talking uh, to us? i grabbed a comment off of show 1184 the man mission to mars one obviously yeah uh, i had lots of good conversations on this particular episode and i just wanted to call out a particular one because it uh, uh it, it is relevant to everything we're talking about here okay and it was Topper Kane who said, uh, hey, great show as always, guys. I truly love the Geek Out series. Has Discovery ever approached you guys about doing a TV show? <laughs> I'm like, I don't think Discovery actually does science anymore, but thanks. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one question I was left wondering was why the Mars mission needed to be scaled down with a Falcon Heavy class lift vehicle versus a Saturn V class lift vehicle. Yes, we'd have to have more launches, but SpaceX is getting things so cheap that 10 or so Falcon Heavy launches would almost be certainly cheaper than three or four launches of a customized Saturn V class launch vehicle. Is it that it's difficult to get trans-Martian injection vehicle large enough to move through material and astronauts with a Falcon Heavy? Which is a good question, right? Because, it, I mean, yeah. it's, it's true that the the 3.75 meter diameter of the Falcon 9s is much less expensive pound for pound than when you get up to the 10 meter of the Saturn V stuff. Although it gets hard to fit stuff in your shroud. You can put 5 meter shrouds on it and so forth. Uh, and so I went down sort of the issues. I actually responded to him in the message at the time just talking about, hey, you know, Saturn V lists about 120 metric tons into low Earth orbit. 
In theory, the new space launch system will get up to those numbers, although not initially. The first rev of it's only going to be 70 metric tons. Mm. The Falcon 9 Heavy, only 53 metric tons. Mm. Right? And, yeah. and just remember, the only one of those three spacecraft to actually have flown is the Saturn V. Right? Yeah. Falcon 9 Heavy is supposed to be around in the next year or so, but it has never flown, and we don't know how it'll actually behave. And the SLS is even further away. Okay. The big thing here is... Uh, and, and I talked about this on the show was Zubrin actually revised case for Mars to talk about using three Falcon 9 heavies to take two people to Mars and back. Mm -hmm. One of the flights is to transport the guys to Mars and land them. The other one is, uh, the second mission is, or the second Falcon 9 is the lander or the ascent vehicle. And the third one is the return vehicle. Hmm. Only for two people, very minimal base bones thing. And you're saying, well, why do we bother stripping the mission down? Why don't you just fly like six or eight Falcon Heavies to get up to the mass you need to make the bigger vehicle? And this leads to a whole discussion about actually building spacecraft in space, which we've never done. We've built a space station, but the structures of the space station were sized to fit perfectly into uh, shuttles or various rockets and so forth. And and also remember, this is borderline fantasy, right? I mean, it, it is doable, but extremely expensive and not quite within reach yet, don't you think? Well, in this, we've built the space station, which costs us $100 billion. Right. Right. But my point was the space station parts are really light, mm. right? They're mostly hollow space or they're trusses and they're broken down into things that fit nicely into the other spacecraft and so forth. Yeah. When you're going to build a vehicle that could fly to Mars with some sophistication, the power plant's going to be heavier than everything else combined. Yeah. The fuel's probably going to be 80% of the total mass of the vehicle. Based on what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. And so we don't actually know how to do a bunch of this stuff. Right. Like, we should learn how. That's important. Mm. It's certainly one of the things I've been reading a lot about lately is how do you store cryogenic fuels over long duration? Because mm. we just don't do that. We never have. Mm-hmm. You know, because cryogenic fuels are hard to store. They're very, they want to warm up. And even space isn't cold enough to keep cryogenic fuels frozen. Mm. So, you know, you'll need pumps and so forth. And if you remember from that show, uh, Werner von Braun's Das Mars project, he specified non-cryogenic fuels, stuff like nitrogen tetraoxides, mm -hmm. right? which will store really well over long durations. It's just they're extremely toxic and extremely corrosive and extremely explosive. Oh, there is that. So there's some minor complications here. Yeah. And when we get into the Martian, uh, Andy Weir picked the sort of safest choice, but he did pick a technology that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And then he never did get into what it'll actually take to lift that uh, ship right. into orbit. Right. So this is the conversation I had with Topper, and, he, and we went back and forth on it a couple of times about just the sort of reality that building spaceships in space, something we need to know how to do, but we actually don't know how to do it yet. And there's okay. a bunch of things that need to be known. So, Topper, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. So where do we start? I think I'd like to start with the things that made me smile. You know, that because Andy Weir is a programmer or was a programmer, that, you know, he added in some references to things that programmers and geeky computer people from the 80s would know about. Like Zork and Leather Goddesses of Phobos. That was hilarious. That was hilarious. Well, it made me smile when when he broke out hexadecimal. So let me set up the yep. scene for those who didn't see the movie. So um, NASA, f with satellite images, discovers that he's moving around and that he is alive. And so uh, at one point, uh, Watney goes to retrieve the Pathfinder and um, the Sojourner rover and brings him back to the Hab, allowing him to contact the Earth. So he basically turns it on in the camera. You know, he hands up a little sign. And, it, and he basically, the camera can move. They, NASA can move the camera, but that's all they can do. So he's like, well, how can I communicate with them? I know what I'll do. I'll make an alphabet. He says, but if I put, you know, signs for A, B, C, D, E, F, G all the way around, that's, you know, not enough difference. He won't be able to tell which ones they're pointing at. So he says, ah, hex. So he makes 16 signs, right? Zero through F. And he moves, uh, puts those around a circle around the camera. 
And so then when, uh, you know, NASA wants to spell out a sentence or whatever, they focus on a particular character for a second. He writes that down and they focus on another one. He writes that down. And this little game has to be played until they can communicate a way for him to modify the, the communications stuff in order to uh, communicate, you know, with a chat, basically, which involved him rewriting over some of the code, if I remember, of the, of the, the code that was actually in either the rover or the Pathfinder. Can't remember what it was, but I thought that was brilliant. You know, here I've got an idea of all they have is a camera to communicate with them, the camera on this rover and, how on earth can I have them communicate back to me? And then just uh, taking from 26 characters to 16 characters with hexadecimal made me smile. Yeah. And and you're right. In the book and in the movie, the strongest parts are the programmery parts. Absolutely. Because uh, that's clearly what his background was. His his chemistry parts aren't as strong. Right. He didn't know them as well. Mm-hmm. I really like it is Ridley Scott's adoption of the of the story. So the first thing that grabbed me in the story that in the movie that wasn't in the book mm-hmm. was the searchlight. Yes. The, the rotating light that yep. was so powerful. Yep. That just that life is over here. Yeah. You know, they, and that's such a visual thing. It would mean nothing in the writing yep. and meant everything visually. I did uh, also I, read the book before and um, I noticed a few, a few things that weren't there. But, you know, uh, first of all, there's a second dust storm and we'll talk about dust storms in a minute. But there's a second dust storm that uh, he encounters on his way to the Mav. And that I don't think that was in the movie. And also, no. um, he accidentally shorted out the Pathfinder and loses communication right before he has to go on that journey. And that would have really, that would, that was a lot of fun to explore in the book because you're inside his mind. But yes. in the movie, that just means nobody talks for a long time. And well, then, you know, that was one of the things I thought was brilliant about the adaptation of this in general mm. was this whole book was written as sort of a diary of a guy stranded on Mars. Yep. And that just doesn't work. No. It, as a movie, so the way there's lots of little tricky devices, like when they had to alter the Mav, yeah. Rather than it being Watney reading what the alterations were, anything this crazy, it's actually the JPL guys yep. presenting to the Mars guys. Here's how you're going to do it. And the guy going, "Are you crazy?" Right. <laughs> but it was, re- I thought it was very clever the way the way that they adapted what was normally just visual stuff, right, or, or uh, was cerebral stuff, right into a visual representation yep. that was meaningful and in better, actually an embellishment. Ridley Scott did a great, great job with that. I, I agree. That was one of the first things that I was concerned about going in is how are they going to get it from his head into, you know, her, his diary into, uh, into back and forth. And I'm sure the second dust storm, the dust storm on the way to the Mav was a really hardly debated thing. Probably. And it probably came out of the fact that the dust storm, he knew it, he knew that it was not good science, that it, and in fact, in the interview with him, uh, Andy Weir on NPR, which you can read at tinyurl.com slash Martian01, he says this about the dust storm. He says, the biggest inaccuracy in the movie is straight from the book. So it's also a big inaccuracy in the book. It's right at the beginning, the sandstorm that strands him there. Uh, in reality, Mars's atmosphere is one two hundredth the density of Earth's. So while they do get 150 kilometer per hour sandstorms, the inertia behind them, because the air is so thin, it would feel like a gentle breeze on Earth. A Martian sandstorm can't do any damage, and I knew that at the time I wrote it. But he needed to have some sort of thing. He, he goes on to say, I had an alternative beginning in mind when they are doing an engine test on the ascent vehicle and there's an explosion and that causes all the problems, but it just wasn't as interesting and it wasn't as cool. And it's a man versus nature story. I wanted nature to get the first punch. So I went ahead and made that deliberate concession to reality, figuring, ah, not that many people will know it. And then now that the movies come out, all the experts are saying, hey, everyone should be aware the sandstorm thing doesn't really work and Mars isn't like that. So I've inadvertently educated the public about Martian sandstorms, and I feel pretty good about that. So there you go. The and you know Ridley Scott ran with that, yeah, because there's all he kept having storms going on at night and stressing him out. Yeah, 
which I thought was really interesting and also not realistic. But I was actually referring to the second sandstorm in the book, which was an intellectual exercise in figuring out he's in a storm. Yeah. That's the reason they knocked out the, the you know, if you think about it from a storytelling perspective, mm. the reason for the short out for Pathfinder is that he doesn't have communications with NASA when he's on the journey to the map uh, so that he doesn't know this. They can't warn him the storm's coming. Right. Yeah. And then he has to figure it out. And he figures it out by placing solar panels and measuring how quickly they're gathering power and spacing them out over several kilometers right. so you can figure out which direction the storm's coming from. It's an amazingly clever intellectual exercise that just wouldn't translate into good film. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I I know exactly what you're saying about how they must have debated this. And uh, some of that debate may have come from the fact that, well, uh, we've already taken enough scientific liberty with the one dust storm. You know, another one is... The, the, dust, the second dust storm would be completely realistic. Yeah. Because it would absolutely block solar panels. There was nothing scientifically wrong about the second dust storm. Yeah, you're right. Fine. You're right. It was all about blocking the solar panels. It wasn't about, That's right. about destroying, a, you know, their equipment or whatever. Yeah. Yep. But, but, and in, and it's so powerful in the book, but it wouldn't have translated into good film. Yep. Yeah. I totally that's agree. That's really interesting. Totally agree. So the other thing, well, we'll be, let's talk more about the adaption pieces and then we'll get into where's the bad science. Okay. Not there's a lot of bad science, but there's, there's a bit. Uh, they up the drama here and there. Yeah. The, um, towards the end when they're actually getting close to the rescue. Right. The, uh, the, that whole red, for starters, the Mav design doesn't actually make sense. Like that last phase where, where the engines drop away and it's just a capsule. Right. Why? Right. Because the, the only, the only thing a Mav is for is to get you to the Hermes. Mm. Once you're there, you throw it away. Right. So why did it look like a capsule? You, you should have kept the last set of engines for maneuvering anyway. The only thing I could think of was to ditch the extra weight. Because it needed, but to that's get only if you need to generate more thrust. Hmm. And I've got the documents of the actual designs of the Mavs that NASA's working on right now, and they don't look anything like that because it's it's unnecessary. It doesn't need to be that tall. That tunnel is heavy. Like you, you don't need a lot of that stuff. Hmm. So I think it was more a familiarity thing that it it looked good. People liked it. It looked like a rocket. Rather yeah. than the actual Mav, if and when they build one, will be short of short and squat. It'll definitely have a lower stage that'll be left behind because it'll have the landing engines on it and it'll have the refueling systems in it. The upper will be probably almost square, as wide, about roughly 10 meters wide and about as tall. The whole conversation about what a Mav really looks like is really interesting. Yeah. Just because the only other time we've ever lifted humans off of another gravitational body. In fact, it lifted anything off another gravitational body was the lunar ascent module. Yep. And that was tiny. Yeah. It held two people. It only needed to generate enough thrust. It's 1.9 kilometers per second worth of delta V. That's how much thrust you need. That's how much uh, energy you need to be able to get back into orbit. The entire vehicle weighed uh, 4,800 kilograms. Hmm. So roughly 10,000 pounds yeah. of which half of that is fuel. Yeah. And the land, that ascent stage was only used for a couple of hours. It only took a couple of hours to get from the surface of the moon to dock with the, the, uh, the Apollo capsule and service module. And then it was tossed away. Mm. Mav for, the Mav for Mars is going to be very different. It has a different set of problems. One is it needs a lot to be a lot bigger for off the bat. It's about 5.2 kilometers worth of delta V, more than double what it took to get off the moon. Mm -hmm. You do have a little bit of atmosphere to deal with and you, uh, the time to orbit because the planetary body is so much bigger. It's only eight minutes to to orbit, but it'll probably be twenty four hours before you can make an interception. Yeah, which means you need a lot more stuff to keep people alive for that twenty four hours, as opposed to just a couple of hours. And the whole, you know, you're pulling twelve Gs because you're lightened up taking off thing. The actual calculations for the eight minutes to orbit peak G loading at the separation of the first stage one point five Gs. Hmm. You'll because there's not enough gravity to need that kind of power. Yeah, twelve G's is stuff you do on Earth. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software. Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. 
Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. What about the science of the, you know, him flying convertible? In other words, the the top blowing off. First of all, having plastic over the top, which is kind of silly. And then uh, when it just comes off and he's being thrust through space, I mean, is there enough space debris near the surface of Mars to to sort of get in there and just wreak havoc with him? Not really. You know, their point, it's the atmospheric pressure at Mars at sea level, which they were probably higher than that, is 1% of Earth's anyway, mm-hmm. and the atmosphere itself is pretty thin. The way I've heard it, Mars' atmosphere described is there's just enough atmosphere to complicate landing and taking off and not enough to be useful. Yeah. Right? You can't actually parachute onto the surface. There's not enough atmosphere to slow you down. Huh. And you can't just take off like there's no atmosphere. So it probably would have worked. I don't even know if the cover was necessary. Yeah. You know, it was sort of a silly thing, except from a drag perspective. Right, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, just to, because when there's, you know, when there's atmosphere going into the top of the MAV, then you've got drag. It's going to push it around. It's push it, push it back. And, and again, there's a, there's sort of a literary device there that made the, Mav far more off target than in than I think was realistic because of the drag, hmm. right? That 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 was sort of that's why that's there. Yeah, is to be able to create drag so the interception doesn't go well. Right, right. And I don't know that it would have been anywhere near that bad because it's just not that much atmosphere. Pretty ingenious though that they had to lighten the load in order to get it off. Well, and it sort of speaks to what we talked about back in asteroid mining and so forth. The cycler, you know, they put Hermes into a cycler orbit. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. Now it's doing this fast orbit and past Mars. It'll take it back to Earth with no additional thrusting required, and you have to intercept it at higher speeds. The Rich Purnell move. Yes. Astrodynamicist. Rich Purnell is a steely-eyed missile man. Yeah, astrodynamicist Rich Purnell, played by Donald Glover, no relationship to Danny Glover. He kind of reminded me of Jeff Maciolik. Remember Jeff, who used to work there at Quap? He kind of had that squirreliness about him, but brilliant, you know? Yeah, really, really cool concept. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, just you putting it into a site, into what basically was an Aldrin cycler orbit, more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the radiate, there's a whole radiation issue here of the, oh, and we're going to add another year to your flight. Hope you live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the MAV itself. Uh, probably wouldn't look like that. Wouldn't be that tall. But what they did to it is pretty reasonable. Um, it would have had some drag issues, but it would have had enough fuel to do more with it. But the actual interception, and again, this is super spoiler. Yeah. So in the book, it's the uh, engineers that grab him via tether. Right. In the movie, they decide to add the MMU mm. out of the, a. It's the captain. Sigh. Yeah. B, which, you know, a captain, that's not their job. That's not what you should do, ever. That's completely inappropriate behavior. It's just like Kirk going down to the surface. Do not do that. Well, yeah, and of course, that's Hollywood, right? I mean, because right. there's she had a guilt about uh, leaving yes. him behind, and she wants to be the one to save him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they added the MMU. So this is, it's a modeled after the man maneuvering unit that they built back in the 80s for the space shuttle. So there yeah. was this idea, and they actually worked. That you would snap this thing onto your spacesuit, and it gave you the ability to to fly around. You're basically your own spaceship. It's like a little chair with jets on it, uh, with jets on it. And they actually used it to retrieve satellites. Mm. It worked. Yeah. Do you know what it wasn't? It wasn't tethered. That was the whole point. Yeah. You right. didn't need to be tethered. Right. <laughs> so what are you doing? <laughs> why do you tie? Why you have a maneuvering system on you, and you tie a rope to yourself? That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> it makes for a good movie though doesn't it it makes for good movies right <laughs> i would also say this and one of the things they did quite realistically when we talk about the problems of the spacesuit is there was a different suit on mars as there was for ascent right right he switched over to the white suit and yep. those white suits look very much like the eva suits that were used on the space shuttle and on the space station today yep. and all of those suits have an emergency maneuvering system on them 
even though they were they retired the MMU. They don't they they retired it back in the Challenger days. So he didn't right? have to cut 80s. a hole in his in his suit and let Instead, the air out. Which is the dumbest thing. Yeah, that's true. And he didn't that's even not- cough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, there's no air. Oh, I'm going to tap my uh, helmet to yours, and we're going to have this moment here while I'm suffocating. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just And none of that was in the book, right? In the book, sure. this is nowhere near as stupidly dramatic. Yeah, so they added all this drama in yeah. there. There's every reason that none of that stuff would have happened. But, but it did make okay. for a good story. We, and we uh, we'll surrender. Yeah, fine. Yeah, drama, drama. But it, it it was it was really unnecessary. Yeah, like did I didn't even think it was impressive enough as it was. Why do we have to add that stuff? Yeah, you're right. You're right. All right, and but and no matter what, loved it. We yep. watch it again in a second. Absolutely, right? really, really enjoyed the heck out of and it. Somebody asked me if um, seeing it in 3D made a difference. Like, but I've never, I only saw it in 3D, so I don't know. But I did make a, a cognizant effort to look around and, you know, take note of what they 3Dized more than you know just regular scenes. And apparently, they didn't cheat. They actually filmed it in 3D. Okay, well, I didn't know that. It but was not thi- simulated. The things that stuck out to me were the vistas the scenery just was awesome in 3D yeah. in the in the Without real sense of the word yeah you, you li- it really was awe it was awe inspiring the 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 escapes yeah. but that also speaks to the suits yeah you know what you can't do in a pressurized spacesuit sit sit on the you edge of sit. a canyon and look yeah, out at can't. the vistas in fact, if you see anybody ever moving around in an actual spacesuit, whether they're on the moon or up in orbit or anything like that, they never sit yeah. because you can't bend the suit that way. Hmm. You all, I mean, that's the reality about spacesuits is you can't put them on by yourself. Yep, that's true. It's typically a two or three person process to put a spacesuit. And that's on. something that Andy Weir talked about in his uh, interview with uh, Adam. Adam. Yep. yep, and Adam Savage. Adam Savage. That, uh, you know, he took some liberties with that, but he was just, you know, banking on the fact that spacesuit technology got better in the future. Right. You know? And that's one thing that he always said. He says, all the stuff that you see in the Martian is plausible, but but the technology has advanced a little bit. You know, it's stuff that may not completely exist now, but it's but it's potentially doable in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and. And Ridley Scott did a good job of showing these harness systems where they actually are putting on and off the suit, where it's split in half. You step into the lower half, sort of lock it in place, and then you reach up and pull the upper piece down onto you, and it clicks together. Yeah, that makes sense. They, they do they do show at times that they're wearing the cooling loops, because you need those inside those suits, yep. but they don't really talk through or show off how you hook the cooling loops up and you know more of the complexities of actually making those suits work. One of my favorite MacGyver moments, Richard, was when he actually fixed the seal in his helmet with duct tape. Yep. <laughs> and then did some – in the book, he did the right thing. He covers up the duct tape and immediately goes to the rover and gets his, changes his helmet. Yeah. In the movie, he goes and looks at his dead plants. Yeah. Yeah. Like, look, if you've got duct tape holding in your air, <laughs> go get a new helmet. <laughs> The plants will stay dead. You don't need to check them. <laughs> hey, Sparky, come here. Oh, it's... Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to announce my answer to freeze-dried ice cream. Instant bourbon. Just add bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> All you got to do is put a little bit in the glass, add some bourbon, and poof, you've got bourbon. <laughs> actually <laughs> it's actually time to give away a d experience subscription from developer express to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club but first become a ui superhero with dev express ui controls and libraries and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch enabled solutions for tomorrow whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Stephen Hauntz. Oh, congratulations, Stephen. Golf clap for Golf you. Golf clap for you. Absolutely. 
Steven just won the D Experience subscription from Developer Express. That's a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up. So, dude, your turn. What would you buy with five grand? Uh, I would buy something that I just bought, actually. <laughs> but it doesn't cost oh, five too grand. Too late. Already bought it. doesn't cost five grand, but it's the Presonus RM32 remote control mixer. That I think oh, I talked yeah. about in a previous show. Just this whole idea of everybody has an iPad and can control their own settings, I think, is awesome. Not only can they control their own, uh, you know, do you have 16 outputs that you can individually assign mixes to, and they can control their own mixes within your monitors or whatever, but you also can uh, have your front of house guy, your sound guy, walking around out in the in the room. And right. adjusting the sound with an iPad. And, yeah. you know, that's very, 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 very cool. Something that we couldn't do before. Cool. But I think I mentioned that on a previous show anyway. I think you did, but it's still, you'd buy another one. It was so good. Well, <laughs> Richard, what was your favorite MacGyver moment? Oh, God, there's so many interesting bits. And, of course, you, the most of my favorite ones are in the book, not in the movie. Right. Right. You know, working with the RTG, which, uh, you know, the... The RTG they, stands for what? The, the radio thermal generator, right? Okay. The, the power generator. Right. So, in the book, it's a big conversation about him going and digging up the RTG, which I don't know if anybody would actually bury it. That's kind of a weird thing to do. And then the different ways he tries to figure out to use it for heat and for electricity, right? Like, I, I want to talk about nuclear power in space in general because it's a big part of the movie, right. even if it's not largely mentioned. And RTGs are pretty much the only thing the U.S. has ever done in space. They use uh, plutonium dioxide as a heat source, mm -hmm. and they emit a lot of heat, and a little bit of that is converted into electricity. So, for example, on the Curiosity rover, which has got one of the most advanced ones ever made, it generates about 2,000 watts of heat and 120 watts of electricity. And does it use the heat to keep the rover warm because it is so cold? Yes. Yeah. Ex you're exactly right. They use heat pipes. Right, which have fluid inside of them, and the fluid gets warm when it's close to the RTG, and that makes them evaporate and move out to the colder parts where it loses heat and then flows back again. Yeah. Right? It's, a, it's a very good system, plus it gives you enough electricity to keep battery charged. Right. And it's completely solid state. They've been used for decades. They were on every Apollo mission, including Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the RTGs for the other Apollo missions, they're all on the moon. Yeah. And the one from Apollo 13 is 20,000 feet underwater in the Pacific Ocean mm. with a nary a leak. It survived reentry and everything. Like it's, it's fine, right? It's a very good, very workable system. And how, and it's only briefly mentioned in the movie. He goes and digs it up. Right. And then he has it sitting behind him, keeping the space warm. And it's interesting that that didn't become another source of problems for him to get over. You know, that just sort of worked. It was like a magic right. bullet. Yeah. And in the and in the book, there's a lot of writing about how he uses it to keep water warm, to pump heat into the other side, yeah. and, and so forth. Which, again, that's all cerebral stuff that makes sense in a book, doesn't work in a movie. Right. So, you know, that that to me was mo very macgyver how you use all of that. That mm -hmm. uh, it was very much of a fun part of it. Would it have been safe for him to use to heat and power the rover? Oh, 100%. It would have been. Like I said, I, I think it's kind of silly that they buried it. There's no reason to. Those things are basically indestructible. They they survive reentry for crying out loud. Okay. And why do you think that they did that? Why do you think they did that? Just to add a little extra danger? I think so. Uh, you know, and, and most people's fears around radiation are relatively irrational. Yeah. But yeah, there's far more radiation coming from space onto Mars than there is coming from that RTG. Okay. I mean, plutonium is lethal. Make no mistake. Right. If you inhale plutonium dust, you will die of cancer. And he actually did say that. You know, as long as I don't drop it, right? He said yeah. that. You know, I should be fine. And he put it in the back seat. <laughs> yeah. But it's literally, you know, a 1,500-watt heat source. That's like one of those little ceramic heaters turned all the way up to max. Right. Only that one, you cannot turn off. Yeah. And it runs for 20 years. Yep. All right. Um, and we talked about, so we sort of talked about the flaws in the story around stuff like the dust storm is not realistic and so on. 
The um, the Hermes, we don't talk a lot about it in the movie at all. It's just sort of there. One thing I noticed about it that was surprising is it's enormous. It's huge. Way bigger than it probably needs to be. Downright luxurious. Abs- they had all the space inside of it. It was cr- crazy. It did look very luxurious. And if, you know, you could go to Mars in a, in a digs like that and be safe, I'd, I'd think about going. Everybody want to go. Yeah. And one piece they had on it was an artificial gravity piece, yep. right? And I, I kind of like the design. It wasn't just your typical cylinder curved all the way around. Right. It was four or five or six chunks of pressurized space with gaps in between. And they had those wheels that provided the gravity. So that's when they would, you know, float into this chamber and then climb down a ladder. But as they got closer to the ground, the, you know, the gravity, because the thing is rotating, just pulled them and they just jumped off. And then all of a sudden they can walk around. Very right. cool. Very interesting. And, and I, you know, there's lots of conversation about artificial gravity. Like it, it may be a requirement to make a Mars mission feasible just with those travel times with eight months each way and so forth. I mean, the reality is when you come off the space station after six months, yeah. you're basically unable to walk yep. for a week. Your, your, your bones are rubber. <laughs> well, it's just you, you've lost your equilibrium and your, your muscles have weakened, yep. even though space station astronauts spend two hours a day, every day working out yep. to try and maintain their bodies. Yep. They're still crippled. So think about this on a mission to Mars. Right. You land on Mars having spent the better part of a year without gravity. You're stuck there for a week before you're really able to move around. And there's nobody to help you. If you get into trouble, well, everybody's that week. Yep. Which, you know, also brings up a really interesting part about the story as a whole, which is all the technology that was missing. Mm. Think about this. Mm. It's 2030-ish, right? That's when he's talking. Mm-hmm. So 15, 20 years from now. Not a single robot in sight. Yep. No, and no, no, how, no doctor. No, you know what? I, I'm thinking Watson, right? IBM's Watson adapted for space. Right. A machine that is conversational and that knows everything about every component of every system for you. Yeah, I noticed that was missing. And tell me what you think. But I think that that was omitted just so that it wouldn't seem too Star Trekky. You know, it I, wouldn't seem like you would, it wouldn't be a crutch for the, you know, to a literary device to lean on to fix things when everything goes wrong. Even though arguably it's more realistic today. Right. That it's, we're all, we already have conversational machines now. Give me another 15 years of upgrading. It'd be more realistic that you'd have a great conversation, but it wouldn't actually be all that helpful. <laughs> well, it would probably know, but it would know a lot about the main thing is what better way to organize potential solutions? Oh, I totally agree. I agree. Right? I mean, this is what that software should be great at. Yeah. Tell me how many uh, Delta V units we would need to do this, blah, 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 based on that. You know, boom. How could we adapt these things together? Like all of those combination things, that's what what expert system software should be fantastic at, especially given another decade and a half or so to work on. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, that to me was very interesting that, that there was, this is actually quite retro tech. In fact, the interior of Hermes looked like something out of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It looked like 1960 stuff. Lots of white plastic yeah. and stuff. Like, it was very retro. It's funny you mentioned 2001 because that's what came to mind when we were talking about the gravity wheels. Because there yep. actually was some, you know, some of that. And it did look very convincing in 2001. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what you they, call they, those things, gravity wheels. And also, I'm not sure that if I was there, because it's such a small wheel, relatively, relatively speaking. I mean, you can see the curve of the floor, right? Yeah. That when you're standing there and you don't look outside because, you know, the, the your universe is going upside down every and rotating 30 around, yeah. seconds or whatever. And that would make anybody sick. Yeah, those so, probably should not have I, windows in them. Well, there are way too many windows in that spaceship. There's yeah. no way you would put that many windows. In right. Their windows are very hard to do in space. Right. They can't be that big. Like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and there's no reason for them because of all of those problems. There's really not a lot to see. Yeah. And other than the sun occasionally blinding you, which is not a feature either. <laughs> you know, right. the biggest thing with artificial gravity is getting people's time back. Yeah. Right. To be a, not have to work out so much to actually be functional. 
And I went looking for where NASA's actually done work on this. And there was a proposal back in 2011 for a system called Nautilus X. I not, this is one of the papers I ran across just for the research on the Martian I hadn't run across before. They actually, um, and this was supposed to be its own long-running spacecraft, mm. but they came up with a prototype concept, a tester that would go to the space station. And so dimensionally, so right away, it's, and the big question you got is how fast does it have to turn for how big? Yeah. Right? And how do you keep, how do you get power to it when it's rotating? How do you keep it from leaking air? Mm-hmm. How do you keep it from when the ship accelerates or decelerates, it doesn't tear itself apart? How do you keep it in balance when one person's on one side and someone's somewhere else, like, and the weight gets offset? Like, those are all complicated problems. So Nautilus X was actually a design to fly to the space station. And one of the big suggestions they had in it, this was so it was 30 feet wide, um, inflatable. Mm-hmm. If it was rotating at 8 RPM, which is relatively fast, yeah. you know, full... It's still a rotation like every six, seven seconds. You'd have one third gravity, which is about the same gravity as Mars. The inner tube would only be about four foot wide, but it would allow you to sleep in some gravity. Huh. But here's one of the questions that you, and you sort of walked around this with maybe not actually understanding it. When you first go up into space or when you go on a vomit comet or anything where you're actually in uh, free fall, you get sick. Right. Everybody gets sick. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, it is normal. Some people get over it faster than others, but everybody gets sick. Because your body is designed with gravity in mind. In mind, so it takes you a few days to sort of get used to zero g. What if you're sleeping in gravity every day? Does that mean you're sick every morning when you go into zero g again? Hmm. Hmm. How well will we actually adapt to that? Because you can't have the whole ship spinning. You need to be able to point. Uh, engines in a certain direction, you need to be able to put antennas in a certain direction. You need some stuff moving, some stuff not. But the the habitable quarters could always be spinning. And, Maybe they have to and, be. And with no windows, you may end up with video screens instead of windows. Yeah, you know. that will create the illusion of, of steady motion. Right. There's also a whole discussion around how big it needs to be to avoid a Coriolis effect. And think about this. At the center, there's no gravity. And at the outer edge, there's a third of a gravity or half of a gravity, however we end up making it. Yeah. The distance, if you're only talking about a 30, 40, 50 foot wide uh, wheel, the difference between your feet and your head is gravitationally significant. Mm. That will mess with you. Yeah. When you bend down to pick something up, you're almost certainly going to fall over. Huh. Right? And get nauseated. Yeah. So there's a lot of problems with this spinning artificial gravity thing. They're technological and they're biological, which in my mind says all the more reason we should be testing this on the space station today. Right. And five years ago, somebody came up with a design that could be for a reasonable price tested on the space station. It's disappointing Mm. that it hasn't been pursued. Hmm. Okay. Should we talk about the oxy-liquid bomb? The There's almost nothing to say. What he, his, his bomb was completely practical, just so you know. Yeah. Was there anything right. anything uh, untrue or stretched true about that whole thing? Yeah, well, the chances that an atmosphere would actually decelerate the sheer amount they specified on the... Uh, in the movie, they get specific about numbers. It was pretty slow. I mean, they slowed to a halt almost. They went... Well, they, they were... So... It's realistic to grab somebody at around five meters per second difference, right? So that's every second you move 15 feet. I should be able to grab you at that. Yeah. That's pretty hard still. Yeah. But faster than that's almost impossible. Yeah. And when they were going to be, and the, the orbital math is pretty good here. So when they were actually going to meet at a reasonable speed under five meters per second, they were going to be 68 kilometers apart. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Yep. So now they have to close the distance, but to close the difference, they have to speed up and to speed. And then now the speed difference when they're actually at a reasonable closing time is 42 meters per second. Yeah. That is very fast. Yes. That is, you are a, you are a splattered bug on the windshield at this right. point, right? So to decelerate themselves, they blow the atmosphere of the, of the spacecraft out the nose. Well, part of it, they, they, they seal off part of it, and they lose a habitable portion of it. Now, I'm think Hermes is a nuclear-powered spacecraft with a rotating wheel and hab and survivability equipment, everything you need for eight people or six people to live for two, three years. Mm. 
100 tons th- or more like a 1,000 tons mm. all up. That's a big spaceship. There's no way the atmosphere is going to slow it down that much. Yeah. That, uh, it doesn't matter how quickly you release it. Even the, and in, in reality, the bomb's not all that necessary either. You should just be able to open the door. Mm, true. Why didn't they just open the door? Why didn't they just open the door? Well, you know, unless really. they have to open it manually. That may have been the problem. It's all literary tropes. True. Right? I mean, they, they, there are reasons to evacuate the space. There's, they could open the damn door. Yeah, yeah. But we forget so that cooler. this is a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much cooler. Yeah. So, But yeah, I don't think you get that kind of deceleration out of it. Okay. And either way, you know, here's the funny part. Why not just use all the fuel you have? Because you've got more than a year to get back. Yeah. They've got time to intercept you with some more fuel if you need it. Okay. And you're in a cycler orbit at this point. You could keep going. Ah, uh, true. True. So there was, there was other ways to solve this problem. This just happened to be the most dramatic. All one. right. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. But it the, is good um, to know also that the, uh, the way that he put this bomb together with the stuff that was around was real. Uh, sugar glycerin bombs, dirt simple to make. Disturbingly simple to make. Mm. Yeah. Uh, this is all old anarchist cookbook stuff. <laughs> and w- one more thing. The spacecraft clearly was a giant ion engine. Andy, we even talked about it. Someday we'll have these engines that are this powerful and so forth. Right. But without a doubt, they would need megawatts of power, mm. which means almost, there has to be a nuclear reactor on board. And you only get a few glimpses at the hind end of the spacecraft. And you, you see the kind of cooling arms that look like it probably was a nuclear reactor, although they're nowhere near big enough. Yeah. Which begs the question, seeing how you have a nuclear reactor on board, why are there solar panels on this spaceship? Mm. You don't really need both. <laughs> you're generating a lot of electricity as it is and it and at this point in time there are no high-powered megawatt class nuclear reactors another paper i ran across in researching for this was nasa's actual work towards building a high-powered reactor that came surprisingly close in 2002 there was a proposal for a mission called the jupiter icy moons orbiter gmo which eventually got renamed Project Prometheus, which is a really cool name, because a big part of it was going to be needing a high-powered nuclear reactor to fly the spacecraft out to Jupiter and map all these missions. They were specifying a massive, massive camera on it. They wanted detailed maps of the moons of Jupiter, Callisto and Ganymede and Europa. And so it was going to be like a nine-foot-wide camera was sort of the core thing on this. They were actually specifying a 37,000-kilogram vehicle. Okay. Engine, power plant, so forth. Now, you got to put that into scale. Cassini, which flew all the way to Saturn, mm-hmm. 2,500 kilograms. Mm. The Orion capsule that carries six people with its service module is only going to come into around 22,000 kilograms. This is twice the size of that. This is a massive vehicle. Mm. Uh and so they, they started working on it in 2001. They actually built some prototype early uh, reactors. They built a thing called Safe 30, which generated about 30 kilowatts of heat. Uh, and it was sort of beginnings of that. And then they lost Columbia in 2003. And yeah. that, A, cost a lot of money as they as they tried to get back to flight. And we're dealing with all of those things. And so uh, Prometheus fell down a lower priority level and was canceled in 2005. But... There was genuine research into building power because when you can build a powerful nuclear reactor, you can start building nuclear engines with it, right? And there's a couple of different ways to go about that. There's a the thermal engine where you just use the heat of the reactor to accelerate propellant. Yeah. And then there's the electric approach where you generate lots of electricity and then you build these high-powered ion engines. And that is, in theory, what was on the Hermes, was a big nuclear reactor that was generating electricity that was running this incredibly powerful ion engine. Hmm. All theoretically possible. Some research is being done in this space. But uh, just not funded at this point, yep. and it and needs to be developed if any of this was going to be fe- feasible mm. in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We only got a few minutes left. Should we talk about some of the new things that have been discovered on Mars and how they would change the story? Sure. Absolutely. So first and foremost is the announcement about finding water on Mars. Right. Which now this which water is kind of a stretch, isn't it? Well, it's all the funny part, of course, is they found water on Mars a bunch of times, right? right? Like in 2007, the Phoenix Lander found water ice under the surface of soil. It also found the perchlorates that everybody's worried about right. now. And so the reality is there, you know, one of the concerns and this is what Zubin wrote in Case for Mars is there's just not a lot of hydrogen on Mars. And there isn't in the atmosphere, but there's lots tied up in the soil in the form of ices and so mm-hmm. forth. So 
No need to haul hydrogen, bring hydrogen down with you to make methane. You could probably get it there. And you should be able to extract water from those compounds mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Which the so the whole hydrogen thing that's done to make more water. Burn hydrogen, make water, yeah. Make water that totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly... Well, unnecessary, maybe, but did he have the equipment used to get water from the soil? I think that's an interesting part of this. And and it also speaks to... I mean, it has a water reclamation system. So could you feed these ices into it and we'd be able to extract the water from it? And that sort of speaks also to these perchlorates. Perchlorates are totally normally occurring. The the normal way they're made, where they show up on, on the earth is in very dry conditions in deserts like the Atacama Desert in South Africa, in South America, mm-hmm. and in Antarctica, where you have lots of sunlight. That combination, the ultraviolet radiation, makes perchlorates. And all perchlorate is, is chlorine bound to oxygen. Okay. And it t- typically has a mineral bound to it as well. Calcium or potassium are the most common. And it's, and it's believed that on Mars, it's calcium perchlorate. So they're normally occurring, but they're relatively rare in the Earth's ecosystem. Like the concentration are extremely low parts per billion level. Okay. Phoenix found it at as, as one half of 1% of the soil was perchlorate. That is orders of magnitude more perchlorate. Mm. It's a lot. And your curiosities found the same kinds of numbers. Now, perchlorates are known to interact with humans by suppressing thyroid function. Oh. So, I mean, it's totally treatable. You just have to treat it. There's even chemical processes to destroy perchlorates, so that might be a modification you have to make to the water reclamation system to get rid of perchlorates, because perchlorates show up in dust. And these ultra-fine dusts that are all over Mars, they're going to get into everything. And they have a poison in them, essentially. Uh So we're going to have to be able to clean that up and manage that. Yeah. It's not not a story-ending problem. I mean, the funny part is, when Phoenix found perchlorate in 2008, they were worried it was contamination because ammonium perchlorate is rocket fuel. Yep. That's the stuff the solid rocket boosters use. Right. In fact, I was trying to figure out, would it make sense to actually take those perchlorates and make ammonium perchlorate for it? Because the nice thing about that solid rocket fuel, it doesn't need liquid oxygen or anything. If you can get enough of it together, it like a heck of a rocket. It's just that the numbers are way too low. You could not round up enough perchlorate to build enough to make a rocket. And also, it's, I think it would take quite a little factory, a little manufacturing operation with, you know, mining and all of that stuff to in order to get it going on a regular basis, don't you think? Yeah. Well, and, and of course, this is what Zubrin's case for Mars is all about, is the in-situ resource processing. Yeah. But he was talking about extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is way easier to suck it up. Right. And then using a process to make it into methane, which is why you needed to add the hydrogen to it, because that makes good rocket fuel. Right. And it's and it's and it's way more practical than any other solution. To actually mine water, to dig it out of the ground and then separate it, is a much more laborious process. But there's a lot of machinery you could do that. And you do have enough gravity to make it happen. So find a patch of ground that's got relatively loose soils, put an auger into it, pull it into an oven, heat the stuff up, take the, and then separate off the gases, and you're sort of underway. Okay. But one of the interesting things about perchlorates is that they're hydroscopic. In other words, they grab water. So as much as the perchlorates are a problem, they're probably the reason there's still water on Mars. That's an interesting way to think about it, too. Yeah, why is there water on Mars when there's like barely any atmosphere and all of these other things? Exactly. And it, and part of this, this chemistry may be vital to hanging on to the water. And the big announcement that just came out recently is these dark streaks they've been seeing for years are almost certainly stains from water coming to the surface of Mars and leaving salts behind as it either evaporates or freezes back into the into the ground. But looking at how big the streaks are and how much it is, they're saying that's too much water. It can't just be coming from the atmosphere. There's got to be another source. So there's something going on in the... You know, Phoenix landed fairly far north, and so they weren't surprised to find water ice there. But these uh, streaks are coming relatively close to the equator. Mm. So there's there's water at the equator, and it's behaving differently. Yeah. So there's stuff, the, the ecosystem of Mars is really interesting. Stuff is going on there. And it opens the door to the possibility of life, which creates an interesting conflict of interest for us. Because if we start looking at terraforming and, you know, 
draw firing off nukes on the poles like Elon Musk said on Colbert's show. Is he getting crazy or is it me? I think he you know what I think? That that I think it was totally out of character. I think he was starstruck by Stephen Colbert. I swear really? he was. And and just was getting a reaction from him. because hey, it's it's not practical. You're talking about thousands of nuclear weapons to actually make a difference, irradiating the crap out of everything in the process. If you can do that, you can more easily crash comets into the poles, no. which a won't be radioactive, and b you know is relatively useful. Just tell everybody for those who didn't see it what he said. Well, I mean. Colbert was asking him about colonizing Mars, and he said, don't you need to make it more habitable? Shouldn't you terraform it? Da, 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 da. And he said, yeah, we can do that. He says, well, what will it take to do this? He says, well, there's a fast way and a slow way. And he says, well, what's the fast way? Detonating nuclear weapons at the poles, at which point Colbert says, you are a supervillain, aren't you? <laughs> and derails the whole conversation. <laughs> but he didn't and, really and go a, into people have, any more detail, though. No, and people jumped all over about that. And he, look, there are there are treaties that say you would never do that. It makes no sense to do that. Yeah. Honestly, I think he was just trying to get a rise out of Colbert. Oh, uh, you think so? And, okay. And and the terraforming show is on the list for the geek outs, and we can have conversations about how to go about that. But I'll tell you one thing. If we're really going to do large-scale terraforming on Mars, you don't want to be there while we're doing it. And just for the record, I'm not a fan of terraforming Mars. Well, here's an interesting way to think about it. By the time you've developed technology sophisticated enough to realistically look at terraforming a planet, you can also build colonies in space with artificial gravity and growing food and so forth. Like all of the skills you're going to need to be able to terraform mean you would never bother terraforming. Why don't we terraform the Earth first? Like, what? Well, what, we are. We have lots of, well, okay, but not completely. Oh, no, pretty completely, actually, dude. <laughs> There are lots of places in Africa where crops don't grow. Uh, you know, what's what's involved in terraforming that, for example? That's a whole other show. If you want to do that show, we'll do that show. Absolutely, I want to do that show. Because I could tell you why we don't grow crops. We don't grow crops in equatorial regions because they're totally different kinds of crops. They behave utterly differently. Okay. They do grow crops there. They just don't grow temperate zone crops. So what's more difficult, terraforming Mars or getting crops to grow in, in temperate regions? Well, we grow crops in temperate regions and we grow crops in tropical regions. They're just different crops. Okay. Right? Like that That's not actually an issue. The real question is, when are we going to start terraforming the earth in a way that actually benefits us rather than harming that's us? That's the question, correctly. Right? And that's a whole other set of issues. Right. But my, my point is, the technology and energy required to terraform a planet is effectively the same stuff we would use to build completely long life-sustaining colonies in space. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about... Building them in space is you don't have that big gravity well to deal with. Right. You have enough gravity to make you keep yourself comfortable and healthy and everything to function. And when you want to get out of it, you just go upstairs. Yep. I like that. So I don't know that we'll ever do that. There's no reason to. Okay, man. This has been fascinating for me. I'm sure it has for the listeners as well. I hope so. Uh, I loved The Martian. I loved everything about it. I find it really I hope it actually catalyzes more interest in Mars because at this particular moment, NASA has no funding to go to Mars. Not only that, but it struck me as I was leaving the theater last night that I can imagine millions of kids getting more interested in science because it's cool now. Yep. And maybe not just because it's, you know, cool because, you know, you see like, Matt Damon being cool or whatever, but the science itself was so awesome and so cool that uh, I think we're going to probably see people 20 years from now who are doing amazing things, saving the world, saying, I was influenced by the Martian. I hope so. I, I hope that's exactly how this goes down, because what the funny part is realizing how much that science, the science of the Martian is quite retro. Mm. It was not leading-edge science. Mm. The science of the next 20 years is almost hard to get your head around mm -hmm. how bizarre it's going to be. Mm. But this is a mission we could have done today. If we had been working on these technologies back when we were first talking about them in the 60s and 70s, the Martian could have been an event in the 2000s. Mm. We've just chosen not to work on an awful lot of that technology. Yeah. All right, Richard. Thanks for a great show. You bet, buddy. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
.NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.